0: You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic, or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello.
1: Hello. And welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Homa Gupta.
2: I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Nir Shafir.
1: Today, we're here with Dr. Hilary Falb-Kausman, who's a visiting postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Today, we'll be speaking about the American University of Beirut and how it became the hub and crucible of Arab nationalism in the post-Ottoman period. So, Hilary, just to dive right in here, could you... Begin by telling us a bit about the role of AUB in this post Ottoman period, and how it became this transnational hub.
3: The American University of Beirut, which was initially the Syrian Protestant College, was founded in the late nineteenth century, and it's part of an American Protestant mission. And there's a few really um, there's um, and Betty Anderson's work. New work on the American University of Beirut is actually like a really excellent place to go for a detailed history of this institution as a whole. Um, The part where my article focuses on is 1920, where it it changes its name from the Syrian Protestant College to the American University of Beirut. It also opens up its doors to allowing um, local individuals, not just Americans, to hold faculty posts Um, I believe at the same rank at this point, and it is switching its mission from conversion to um, promoting a liberal arts education.
0: So it's transitioning from, as you said, a missionary institution uh, to essentially a regional institution of higher learning with a transnational bent.
3: Yes. AUB really functioned as a meeting place for Arabic-speaking individuals um, from throughout the region. And um, beginning in the first years of the mandate period, the governments of Iraq, Palestine, and Transjordan decided to subsidize the educations of a limited number of individuals in return for them working for, um, the governments that had sponsored their studies for a particular period of time. And this, um, this, uh, this also meant that if students did not complete their studies or did not serve, um, their governments, they had to pay for the amount of time they'd studied. And, um, and I don't think they had to pay for the amount of time they would have served, but they had to sort of pay the entire cost, of their, of their studies, which for these individuals was generally quite significant. So from the British Mandate Government's perspective, AUB was particularly appealing because it was close. It also taught English, which was useful for the British mm-hmm. administration, and it was relatively inexpensive. Um, if you wanted teachers, um, bureaucrats, other officials to learn enough English to be able to work within the bureaucracy, it was extremely expensive to actually send them to England. Mm -hmm. Um, So AUB was sort of an easy local, um, although I should say it took quite a while to get there from Baghdad, but generally closer, cheaper place. And this had the unintended side effect from the British perspective of really creating sort of networks of regional, um, national uh, notions of affiliation also
0: so let's talk a little bit more about this context so aUB is a place a destination for lots of Arab students from British mandates during the post Ottoman period so we're talking about Iraq Jordan and Palestine in those cases yes however aUB is in Beirut which is part of a French mandate uh, in Syria and Lebanon um, and of course is is run not by British or French institutions but rather rather American missionaries so there's kind of a I don't know if we call it trans-imperial, but there's there's multiple uh, empires operating in this space and also, you know, a longer history of um, sort of pan-Ottoman you know, student activity in AUB. So in the post-Ottoman period uh, and in this context of a colonized Middle East, colonized by multiple empires, where do you see uh, AUB's unique position? How would you characterize that?
3: Part of it is that it was actually able to remain um, relatively independent from all of these different Mm -hmm. imperial influences Um, Again, sort of the legacy of missionary institutions in the Ottoman Empire was um, due to, you know, sort of partially capitulations, but also the uh, rules applying to foreign schools. It meant that often missionary institutions were given somewhat of a free reign, particularly in comparison Mm -hmm. to state schools. And AUB itself uh, was undergoing a lot of change during this period as well, in part because different um, missionary objectives in the region were also changing. So students, in the, the university, when it changed its name, was also partially changing its mission from trying to convert students to Christianity to really sort of educating uh-huh. them mm-hmm. in a particular way. Um, so AUB's kind of relative independence continued into the French Mandate period. And again, as its sort of mission changed, it became a very appealing place, not only for governments to send there, um to send scholars, but also for students from around the region to go.
1: What were the types of books or scholarship or theories that these students were being exposed to?
3: So the students who are um, being these bursary scholars who are being groomed to be teachers are taking courses in kind of cutting edge American pedagogy. And, you know, they read John Dewey's Democracy in Education. They read, you know, sort of works that are specifically targeting particularly types of um, pragmatist education um, and also community um, sort of uh, assuming education that varies on a state level. And this is one of the um, fun incidents I discuss in the article, which is where a bursary scholar, um, Hassan Jawad, goes to the head of the Iraqi system of education And, you know, sort of is saying, hey, well, you know, in the American system, it's different based on local communities. Maybe we should change our curriculum based Mm -hmm. on local communities. And um, Satya al-Husri, who's heading up the educational system, it's like, are you crazy? Um, We should have a unified curriculum because we need to create a unified Iraq. And this would make no sense. Um, So some of the the texts they were reading are really kind of. Coming from a very American tradition and one that's, um, and also, you know, sort of what is going on in the history of American pedagogy in the 1920s and 1930s. And this is something that doesn't translate very well um, to people who've been educated during the late Ottoman period. I was particularly struck
1: by your description in your article, which listeners can find a link to on the website about the first cadre of bursary scholars who went to A-U-B, a small group of scholars. But the group of scholars from Iraq were accompanied by a chaperone, whom you mentioned, James Somerville. And I'm curious, in one of the quotes, he said something about students becoming modern while remaining moral. And I was wondering if you could comment on this kind of early period and the mandate and and what that meant, that pedagogical
3: impetus. Um, So bursary scholars, um, bursary is the British term for scholarship students. Uh, So as I discussed partially in the article, this program, everyone involved has different objectives. So from the um, sort of the British mandate government perspective, the idea is, again, to sort of cheaply train teachers who would know English, but also math and science. In part because there hadn't been a lot of institutions mm. in the region, people qualified on a very basic level to teach these subjects were in pretty short supply. Then, from uh, the sort of the universities' angle, they were really looking to create sort of ideal men, uh, later women, but to make individuals who you know were the kind of the real beneficiaries of what we traditionally think of as a liberal arts education, with good characters, well-rounded. And the place of religion was something in the in um, the British Empire. It was seen as a way of sort of maintaining individuals' moral character. And there's a lot of different discussion and kind of histories of British imperialism about kind of preserving particular religious traditions as a way also of maintaining a certain level of morality and hopefully obedience. Um, and so from... Um, James Somerville point of view, that um, as an AUB graduate who was then working for the British government, the idea was, okay, we're going to train this new group that will go back and sort of modernize the country while maintaining the aspects of their tradition and their past that we think are going to be beneficial um, for this
0: project. It sounds like a very classic civilizing mission trope, but I'm wondering how it fits into the specific nature of British or we could talk about maybe British and French governance under the mandate system that's created um, during the interwar period.
3: So one of the unique aspects of the mandate governments is obviously that they were explicitly meant to be temporary. So this particular type of imperialism had a very explicit modernizing mission. I mean, they were meant to Create individuals who are ready for modern governance and eventually leave. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, this is you know generally sort of paying lip service. It
0: was mm, quite yeah. an imperial project, but but subjects often took it seriously.
3: Yes, um, and particularly um, the individuals who actually went to AUB. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of what I discuss in my article is how they sort of were able to use their status in order to make claims on the Iraqi government in particular, but also mm-hmm. the um, Palestinian and Jordanian governments as well.
2: Could you give us an example of one of these claims?
3: Um, well, uh, so my, the, one of the things I really enjoyed about this project was kind of watching these students sort of escalate their demands. Um, I mean, you know, they start out by asking specifically for more pocket money. Mm-hmm. And they want to be able to control what they can do with their pocket money. yeah, and then they get their parents involved, and eventually the British government, the the Iraqi government at this point actually caves and they get some money. But then they begin to shift towards making more political claims. So they protest the signing, the signing of one of Britain's treaties with Iraq um, as something imperial and colonial. So even though they were being funded, by this government, they were still protesting its actions mm-hmm. and essentially able to get away with it.
1: Hillary, could you also describe for us that as, I mean, you talk about AUB as this hub for Arab nationalism, but it's also um, a place that is transcending these kind of national boundaries. Um, and yet it's also a place where certain ethnic and sectarian identities are sometimes coming into play and sometimes being kind of suppressed. And I'm just curious about, you know, in addition to commenting on the Anglo-Iraqi Treaty um, in um, 1926, uh, were students commenting on, for instance, the Arab revolt in the 1920s in in Iraq? Were they commenting on other things that sometimes were grounded in more Shia-dominated areas but still had a more national kind of objective? I'm just curious about
3: so um, particularly um, Iraqi members of this, um, this student magazine that I discuss, Al-Urra um, al in the 1920s, they have an Iraqi awakening issue. Um, but so what's, what I found interesting was their, their political program that they were willing to discuss in this journal is pretty, pretty vague. Um, they don't specifically reference the nineteen twenty. Revolt, but they're they're sort of they're they're anti-imperial and they're willing to sort of talk about how imperialism is wrong. And sort of different individuals from throughout the world, the Arabic-speaking world, who also participate in this journal. in sort of later later years, um, like Akram Zuaiter, for example, who's a real um, he's a real sort of Palestinian Arab nationalist who ends up teaching in Iraq, but he participates in this journal and he's very willing to sort of talk about how imperialism is more of a problem. But I would say that sort of also in terms of your question about sectarian divisions, that wasn't something I necessarily saw envisioning while they were at the American university of Beirut. The, the bursary scholars who came were from different sects. I mean, Fatil al-Jamali, who's one of the most famous ones who becomes Iraq's prime minister very briefly was Shia. Um, And then Mm -hmm. one of the bursary scholars, um, Khalil Ibrahim um, who actually James Somerville says he is the only bad egg of the bunch. And um, to our great sorrow, he's a Christian and we need to, you know, sort of we really hope that AUB will fix this guy. Um, so there were um, there was somewhat, I think, on the Iraqi government, um, a conscious effort to maybe try to have sort of more diversity of sects while students were there. I do know that religion has you know, played more of a role in part because they were required to go to different um, services at different points. But um, from the perspective of this article, um, Iraqi sectarianism in particular was not something that I saw manifested very frequently Mm -hmm. in these materials. So
1: between uh, what you described as kind of AUB's um, mission to create this ideal men or women, and the British mandate or the respective government's missions to create uh, secondary school teachers or to uh, create a cadre of administrators who are well-versed in English. Um, In addition to this, what role does the space of extracurricular activities, for instance, Mm. clubs, um, newspapers, um, newspapers, what role does that play for bursary scholars?
3: For these individuals, I mean, it's really it's really training for what they're going to end up doing with the rest of their lives, particularly these literary clubs, these national clubs. I mean, they, they write, they begin to really write prolifically while they're students at AUB, and then they'll go on to continue writing and to continue sort of participating in these particular types of demonstrations. Um, One of the other things that I argue in the article is that their relationship to their government is also sort of forged during this period. That as bursary scholars, um, they know they're guaranteed a position with a government bureaucracy after they finish. And this gives them this funny position of sort of kind of being part of the government already, mm-hmm. but not really. Um, and particularly with Iraq's government, You have a lot of different individuals who move in and out of government service, move in and out of power, um, in part because the government itself is, you know, sort of not not necessarily running the show. There's the British, there's the Hashemite Mm -hmm. monarchy later on, there's military figures. But so these these bursary scholars, even at this early point, are beginning this sort of path of negotiating with the government, of sort Mm -hmm. of working with different individuals and understanding that they can push particular boundaries.
1: Mm -hmm. Another really compelling, I think, moment in the article was the description of the Al-Nasuli incident. And specifically with the role of AUB graduates in writing new textbooks and the debates around having standardized curricula versus local curricula. I was wondering if you could go into depth on the Al Nasuli incident and specifically the textbook that was in question.
3: So, this incident is um, sort of, it's like really famous in the history of Iraqi education during this period. You know, not that this is the most broad field, but this is a really big incident because it highlights um sectarian dimensions but also um like hannah batatu for example really sees this as a beginning of pushing for free speech but um so what happens is there's a textbook that comes out in um, anis al-nusuli who writes the textbook is a um He's a graduate of AUB, but the textbook has aspects of it that are sort of anti-Shia.
1: What specific
3: aspects are anti-Shia? I'm I'm curious. So this part I'm a little fuzzier on, but the specifics are, I think it's celebrating... the um, the Umayyads too much and part of it is kind mm-hmm. of the way they treat specifically the death of Ali and how they're mm-hmm. favorable to individuals I afterwards. See. could see how that could yeah. <laughs>
0: go one way or the other. The
1: big historiographic <laughs> debate. Yeah. yeah. Um,
3: sure. So he ends up, I believe, getting fired and then you have protests trying to reinstate him on the part of both Sunnis and Shias. And, and so partially this is showing how um how politicized textbooks could be. But also, I I don't think it's necessarily, like this particular aspect, I don't think is necessarily just a sectarian story because um, students were willing to support this teacher even if they didn't necessarily have the same sect as him. I think in part because he was, it seems like quite an exciting teacher as well.
0: So Hillary, you've you've described how at times uh, what we might call sectarian politics Uh, of what is indeed this very heterogeneous group of students uh, come to the fore in the educational experience, campus politics, even the curriculum in the case of these textbooks. However, you also alluded to the fact that there is to some extent a larger solidarity that's also building among the uh, students from the different uh, British mandates uh, and uh, the faculty, particularly um, Arab faculty from the region, which I think begs the question of to what extent do you see uh, in the academic realm um, a broader um, sense of, of Arab nationalism, which of course is a, a general uh, phenomenon during this time, coalescing around sort of the academic experience?
3: Well, I think in the 1930s and 1940s, AUB's politics of Arab nationalism, both within and outside of the classroom, become much more explicit. Yeah. Um, in you know in the 1940 with 1948 in palestine there's you know the the whole campus and administration comes out sort of in favor of palestinians and there's a huge effort there hmm. in this early period however um, these uh, you know sort of more territorial notions of nationalism are not not that explicit and so you have more um
0: linguistic nationalism exactly
3: or- Um, And in the petition I describe in the article, you know, you have students sort of advocating for more Arabic language and also Mm -hmm. to produce their own textbooks because there aren't enough Arabic language textbooks in part sort of due to the Ottoman legacy of what kind of textbooks you're producing, Mm -hmm. why. But um, I think the other... um, the other real aspect of AUB is just the the sheer variety of students mm-hmm. who were going there and the fact that they keep up with each other. Um, so one of the sources I used was the um, Alculia, their alumni magazine. And so graduates write mm-hmm. in and say, mm-hmm. I just got a promotion. I published this book. I got married. I hung out with other alumni mm-hmm. in, you know, the mountains.
2: So on that note, I mean, have you been... Could you tell us about the afterlives of some of these people, these AUB graduates? I mean, you mentioned that the government kind of gave them scholarships in order to serve uh, as bureaucrats, as teachers. I mean, did they end up doing that? Did they end up, you know, taking pro or anti-government positions? Can you just give us a few examples of uh, what these people's lives turned out like?
3: Well, in general, they really um, they pretty much all work for their governments in some capacity for a lengthy period. Um, They tend to start in the educational system, but to go from there. For a lot of these individuals, working as a teacher is a stepping stone to getting a better job in government service. And bursary scholars, you know, sort of the government already kind of knew who they were. So it seems like they had more of an in. Um, So for um, Fatila Jamali is really kind of the the most famous and extreme example, because he goes from being a teacher to then um, hands up being the director of education and later on prime minister. I mean, and then, of course, you know, sort of sentenced to death, exiled to Tunisia. But um, many of the uh, essentially all of the other bursary scholars had fairly successful careers in government service. Um, they, I wouldn't say they all necessarily, you know, lived and died working for the same governments, but...
2: So they moved around between different governments?
3: Yes. Um, And um, for the Palestinians in particular, um, and Jordanians, I mean, as I talk about in the article, sort of a huge proportion of the educational, the higher ranks of the educational civil service were former AUB students or bursary scholars. Um, In separating those out, I would sort of say that bursary scholars generally seem to have higher positions and again, go on their they're producing quite a lot of these textbooks. Um, I mean, one of the other fun ones is um, Abdul-Khader Al-Tanir from Jordan who writes the Jordanian national anthem.
0: I mean, what do these people end up after the mandate uh, system?
3: Um, Well, so these, um, the Palestinian scholars in particular, sort of their, their AUB education after the end of the mandate will really, it it helps people land on their feet. Um, Education is portable capital. And so for people who, were able to get a BA. This was really helpful in sort of finding education as teachers elsewhere. I mean, one of the people I talked to, um, who is not a bursary scholar, but is a graduate is, um, Darwish al-Makdadi who ends up, you know, he's works in Iraq for a few years before getting kicked out, works in Palestine. Then when he ends up getting kicked out from there, I think he goes and essentially founds Kuwait's educational system, um, Whereas with Jordanians, I mean, they're, they're in the government bureaucracy, they're, even if they're not necessarily gaining ministerial posts, they're gaining high bureaucratic ones. I mean, you can trace them through the archives and sort of watch them advancing um, in rank. Um, I mean, one of them who I discuss, um, Ali, Ali Ruhi, um, who's father was working in the um, inspectorate of the mandate for Palestine's educational system. Ali Ruhi goes, you know, sort of all the way up through the ranks of Jordan's educational system, publishes textbooks. I forget if it's him or his brother, but one of them actually subs in for the king of Jordan in playing an international chess match that's documented in Time magazine. All right. Um,
0: Important position. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Especially in a monarchy. Yeah. I think that
3: was... uh...
2: Chess playing 301. And- <laughs> 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 Sorry, guys. I, I just <laughs> <laughs> All right.
3: Um, with the Iraqi scholars, um, they actually, because they begin to gain, um, with the sort of independence from Britain, they also begin to gain kind of higher positions within the government system. They begin to form kind of an old boys network. Um, so, for mm-hmm. example, Akram Zuaiter writes Fadila jamali and says, hey, can you get me a job? Mm-hmm. And he does. Um, and there's a tendency for these scholars to continue to keep up with each other, to continue to sort of prefer to work with each other as mm-hmm. well.
2: So the creation of a new elite, a new yeah. um, mm-hmm. group of bureaucrats and... Educate people.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, when you mention network, I'm just wondering about the role of these individuals and strains of thought, such as pan Arab thought, that emerges. I mean, the mandate system is ostensibly one that is going to create modern and independent nation states, which it does. Whether that's to, to the chagrin of the British and French is another uh, issue, but it ha- does happen. But it was certainly not one intended to create a united uh, Arab political bloc throughout the Middle East, uh, that would transcend the boundaries of those States. And given that such projects existed, but maybe did not succeed, to what extent do we maybe see class playing a role, you know, so these people are from a specific kind of social class educated at AUB, especially when they return. So to what extent is this sort of playing out, uh, in, within the class dimensions of those post mandate, uh, States
3: these bursary scholars were not all from the same strata Mm -hmm. of society as well. However, you're right to sort of say when they come back, when they have this particular degree, they've gained a certain status. And part of what I've been finding, particularly in the case of Iraq, is that there begins to be much more of a sort of separation between people who are part of the government, sometimes part of the government, and people who aren't. And that um, education is kind of one of the few ways for people to gain any kind of a foothold in the civil service Mm -hmm. if they're not already born into it. However, I I would also say that these these individuals were often pretty removed from some of the more popular protests that are taking place during Mm -hmm. this period. I mean, sort of, you know, you have... You have the 1936-1939 revolt in Palestine and the individuals I'm looking at were sort of, I mean, Akram Zuwaiter is all the way back in, he's in Iraq during this period in part because he got kicked out, but he's, um, he and many of these kind of other bursary scholars are involved in terms of um, they they write, they talk, but they don't physically participate. They're sort of, they're part of the government in a particular way now. Um, in terms of your question also about kind of how does this contribute to either the sort of the modern nation states or this kind of broader idea of pan-Arab nationalism, mm-hmm. I think that for the individuals I'm looking at, the problem was you couldn't, you know, they, they're not involved in democratic systems. These are not systems where... Um, Where governance is can really be affected that much by what these people are doing. It's a really limited political sphere. It's a limited public sphere. On the other hand, they can say almost whatever they want. So what I think this means for ideologies is people tend to talk about this kind of broad, inclusive notion of Arabism that's very much focused on the Arabic language, Mm -hmm. in part because what they were experiencing at AUB, um, and then what ends up happening, particularly in Iraq, is you have individuals from throughout the Arabic-speaking world coming together in a classroom and trying to teach people something. So it's sort of very hard to argue for a very specific removed, unique Iraqi or Palestinian or Jordanian notion of nationalism when the person who's telling it to you is not from that area at all.
2: Interesting. So you've been talking about this kind of privileged position of AUB uh, within the kind of, uh, let's say, um, market of education that existed in the mandate period. Uh, But when did, you know, states decide to start national universities And even when those came around, did AUB continue to hold this place of like a revered institution, a creator of uh, elite networks and so forth?
3: Um, So in Jordan, it's the early 1960s. In Iraq, it's the 1950s where you actually get sort of the first national universities. In Iraq, you had Mm -hmm. higher education before that. Um, But and... um, So AUB's place begins to be kind of usurped by these other institutions by that kind of later, um, you know, really post-independence period. Mm -hmm. But um, I would say that, I mean, the institution still has a lot of prestige, which I think, you know, sort of only got increased with the shift from, you know, Britain's influence in the region to American influence in the region.
2: And Uh, how come AUC never... uh American University of Cairo was never, uh, I mean, were there bursary scholars sent over there? Was it a competitor?
3: So they actually, so uh, students tended to get sent to Cairo if they were looking at agriculture, um, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. Um, but um, I think when they were trying to produce teachers specifically, they tend to have preferred Beirut, I think, mm-hmm. because it had maybe a stronger educational program, but one of the things I'm looking at um, in kind of expanding my dissertation into a book manuscript is trying to look at other institutions in more depth of higher education in the region and to talk about how the shift to national universities um, shapes the kind of educational trajectory of the region. So, for example, I know in the 1950s, um, individuals from Jordan would actually go to Iraq to study um, for English language as well as mathematics, too. So it seems at that point people had more of a choice as well.
1: Give our listeners a sense
3: of um, who, what are some of the archives that you're working with? What are some of the publications? What I have looked at that you see specifically in this article is a lot of um, materials from the National Archives in the UK, where I was going through um, essentially, you know, all of the files relevant to education in Iraq, Palestine, and Jordan from those angles, and then being able to sort of tease out what's going on with particular individuals. And then back at the American University of Beirut, I was able to really put the region into perspective. As I talk about in the article, sort of Al- Al-Khulia, their alumni magazine, was really invaluable for figuring out what happened to these individuals. Um, and also kind of what they saw as important. I mean, mm-hmm. they were they were really keeping up with their alma mater. There are also student magazines, records of student groups. Um, So this meant I could get a sense of what it was actually like to go to AUB, what these students would have been participating in. Um, And then they had student files, which is where I began to focus on the bursary scholars. And these files were from the point of view of the Palestinian Iraqi governments and also sort of from the point of view of the university. Saying okay, we have these students coming here. These are the names of the students. These are their backgrounds. This is what we're we want them to be, and this is how we think we're going to do it. And then so I, th-
1: there seems to be a kind of tracking and surveillance of the yes, students,
3: which is really useful for my purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I used um, so students who then went on to teach in Palestine. I could use teachers' personnel files in order to figure out what happened to them when they did their service back there. Um, I also could trace their names through different government gazettes, which list when um, teachers of a certain level are hired or fired. Um, so this meant I could kind of put together mini biographies of most of these individuals that um, that I really would not have been able to do in the same way without kind of these speci- the university archives at AUB. Um, and the in order to figure out what these people were writing, not just what they were doing in their lives, I used different textbooks um, from the textbook museum in Salt and Jordan, which had mm-hmm. a, lot of, um, a lot of materials that were produced by AUB scholars, in part because they produced a really disproportionate amount of the textbooks used in the region during this period.
2: Yes, and you can check out Hillary's uh, lovely review of that archive on Hazinet.info. Which is a website detailing the uh, archives and libraries of the Middle East and of the Islamic world in general. Hillary,
0: while listening to you talking about your sources, it, it just always—it's uh, always struck me how um, uh, education ministries in the modern period, the nineteenth and twentieth century, produce such a rich source base due to the way they they operate. Sort of the the. Um, you know, the constant documentation of everything that's going on due to the nature of education, I guess, as such, being sort of the forefront of literacy in the modern Middle East. Uh, And, uh, you know, the education files are often a rich source base for social history to study a wide variety of topics, gender, um, national movements, as we've been talking about today. But also, uh, there's something, I think, about education that encourages students who later go on to become teachers to kind of make it their own. And that's why I really enjoyed your references to the alumni magazines and to these sort of almost extra institutional forms of expression of involvement uh, and attachment uh, and continuity with these educational institutions such as AUB as students go out into the world Uh and in their own lives. Uh, I know our, our friend here, Huma Gupta, who's joined us today. Uh, one of the reasons why she's here is that uh, she commented to, to me yesterday during another interview that she really enjoys Iraqi yearbooks.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'd like you
0: to exp- expand on that. Huma, yes, might.
1: sure. Um, I, I'm sure you've come across these, but um, available digitally on archive.org are a number of digitized high school yearbooks from Iraq, uh, mostly Um, Christian schools, but uh, they have fantastic articles and photographs, especially in the 40s and 50s. Um, You see all the students listed, and you have actually bilingual, so half English, half Arabic, and sometimes articles are translated and other times they're not. Um, Have you come across these? Have you used them
3: in your work? Um, I did. I've looked at them. I mean, my focus is on the um, government systems of education, but I've used, um, I have looked at those materials and used them, especially trying to follow people who might have had an education in a non-government school, but then go on to work in government service. Um, I would say one of the things about doing um, history of education that uh, focuses on an institution um, that I wanted to avoid with this particular article is a lot of people will just write like an institutional history. You know, the Mm -hmm. institution was founded in this year and this is how it changed and in this article, I really wanted to kind of turn my view outward to say, OK, so people go through this institution, but how does it shape mm-hmm. the wider educational, politically traje- political trajectories of the region once students have left?
0: And, and I think that that's a great uh, lens that, uh, you know, s- sort of people are developing these days, especially looking at the Ottoman education system, both missionary schools, but also the Ottoman um, state education system and how it created um, interesting networks. You'll, our listeners will find in the bibliography on our website reference to some articles sort of in that vein looking to other cases uh, from the Ottoman and post-Ottoman worlds uh, of work like that of our guest, uh, Dr. Hillary. Falb Kalisman, you know, dealing with uh, the history uh, of education and really the history of students uh, in the modern Middle East. Hillary, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and and sharing your research with us today. I really enjoyed it.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you, you,
0: Huma, for us filling in as a host (laughs) today. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Nir, as well. It's been a pleasure. For for providing the space and providing the lovely face. (laughs) Now, I want to thank our (laughs) listeners for uh, tuning in. I want to invite you to our website, Podcast.com, where you'll find other relevant episodes um, and also the supplementary materials related to this podcast. It's a great place to leave your comments and questions, or if you prefer, take them to Facebook to get in touch with our community of now over 20,000 followers. That's all for this episode. Join in next time. And until then, take care.